Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Gail Parker is a psychologist, certified yoga teacher, and a lifelong practitioner of yoga. She became the president of the Black Yoga Teachers Alliance Board of Directors in 2020, and is well known for her pioneering efforts to blend psychology, yoga, and meditation as effective self-care strategies that can enhance emotional balance and contribute to the overall health and well-being of practitioners. She's been a featured psychology expert on nationally and internationally syndicated talk shows, including numerous appearances on Oprah. Gail, welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So your work is so interesting because you truly sit at the intersection of one of my favorite practices, yoga, and then also psychology. And I think, uh, wow, given what's going on in the world right now, I think psychology is at the forefront as we try to navigate through this mental health epidemic. But let's, to start, let's rewind and, and talk about yoga and how did you talk about the beginnings of your personal yoga practice? How did you come to yoga? Well, I love telling this story. I'll try to keep it short. I had just graduated from college and this was in 1968. When Ooh, there good was, year to be, get out of college. Wow. A lot going on yeah, in the world then. There, a lot was going on in the world and not unlike now, by the way, I mean, there was a tremendous upheaval. It was in the midst of the civil rights movement and the there were there I was in Detroit at the time and it was the year after the riots and I returned home from college and stumbled across a yoga class there was no such thing as a yoga studio then but there was someone teaching yoga at the Detroit Institute of Arts and his name was Mr. Black and I wish I had an image to show you Mr. Black wore a black suit and tie to teach us yoga. <laughs> and I have a picture of myself standing on the steps of the <clears throat> Art Institute. I had a huge afro and I had on jeans and a t-shirt because there we did there, there were no yoga mats, there were no yoga clothes, there were no yoga studios. It didn't exist. I later found out, I didn't know it at the time, that my yoga teacher was, who is now called Yogacharya, was a direct disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda. And that was my introduction to yoga, to the practice. And so my introduction to the practice was not from a physical perspective. It was from a deeply spiritual, not religious, but a deeply spiritual perspective where the focus of the yoga that we did, the physical yoga that we did, was designed to help us take a deep dive into our own self-inquiry. And that's, and he founded what is called Paramahansa uh, Yogananda, founded the Self-Realization Institute. The headquarters are in Los Angeles, as a matter of fact. So his whole teaching was about helping us recognize that we are whole and complete just as we are. That's a huge lesson to learn. Mm-hmm. And so I started. Now, I didn't learn it that day. I didn't learn it that year. I was there for a year. And I don't remember what happened. I don't remember why I stopped. I think maybe he stopped teaching. I'm not sure. It was a long time ago. But self-inquiry intersects with my work and my interest as a psychologist. And the practice of yoga, my experience of the practice of yoga, the way I practice it and the way I teach it is when I teach, is 
it takes you inside yourself. And self-study is an aspect of the practice of yoga. And it intersects perfectly with my work as a psychologist. So let's talk about that in terms of integrating yoga into your practice. What does that look like? And, and do you find yourself prescribing yoga to patients? And yeah, let's talk about what is that? If I go to see you and I sit in your couch or we sit in a Zoom, mm -hmm. what does that look like with regards to yoga and how that's integrated? I'll tell you exactly what that looks like. It's very simple, actually. It's yoga the way I teach. When I'm teaching yoga and teaching about it, what I teach is that yoga is a breath practice. If you can breathe, you can do yoga. So the assumption is when someone comes to see me that they are in some form of distress. Mm -hmm. And the awareness is mine as a practitioner is that you can tell by the way someone is breathing where they're holding their stress. So someone comes into the office like this and I say, how are you? I'm fine. You, you, for everyone listening, you're shrugging, your shoulders are like locked yeah. up near your <laughs> earlobes. <laughs> I say, well, come on in, have a seat and let's just relax our shoulders down on our back and take a moment how does that feel? Well, it feels okay. Well, let's take a moment and let's just do some breathing together before we get started, just to settle in. So close your eyes. You can do that now. <laughs> close your eyes and take a deep inhale through your nose and exhale through your mouth. Another deep inhale through your nose, exhale through your mouth. One more time. Tell me what you're feeling right now. <sighs> I feel better. It's that it's, right. it's no more complicated than that. Now I will do more than that, but people are not coming to me as a psychologist to practice yoga. So I do not say to them, okay, and now we're going to do some yoga poses. But what I do is I weave and integrate the principles of yoga into the work that I do with people in, and, and the breath practice is an easy, a very easy one to do. And so we learn meditation. I may not call it that, but I may say, let's just close your eyes for a moment or lower your gaze and just imagine that you could feel any way in the whole wide world that you wanted to feel. And instead of thinking about what that is, let's just let that answer bubble up in you. And when you get an answer, within yourself, let's just breathe. Imagine that you can breathe into that feeling. And when you exhale, you're breathing it out and it's surrounding you. So we do that for a while. And then they come out and I say, how do you feel? What was your feeling? Peace. How did you know, how did you feel doing that? I feel, I feel peaceful. And then I say that is always available to you. Anytime you don't feel that way, you can always do this. So that's how I teach it. Yeah. So I, I have a couple follow-up thoughts. So one, you were talking about stress and holding stress. You mentioned like holding your shoulders. Like stress is, stress is complicated. Yes. And one of my first memories with, with stress in yoga, I went to a class, Sean Korn, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And she said, you're, you're, she had a line I'll never forget. Like, you know, your mind can forget, but, but your body doesn't. No. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And this idea of like 
stress being in your body or your body remembering stress, remembering trauma is it's complicated. It's interesting. And so how do you explain that? Like, how is it manifested and stored, whether it's stress or trauma in the body? How do you think about that? So that's where it is that we experience stress and trauma in our bodies. We don't experience it in our minds. It lands with great force viscerally. And if you think, if you become, so, so the work is to teach people to become aware of how I am impacted physically when I'm talking about I'm under stress. So the person with the shoulders up around their ears doesn't know that's what, they don't know that's what they're doing because that's how they move through the world. And so when something as simple as, let's just lower your shoulders and put them on your back. How does that feel? Brings awareness to the difference between feeling stressed, which means that you are contracted, and feeling relaxed, which means you've released contraction. In order to make the release of contraction your default mode, so that you're not walking around unaware of the fact that you are stressed, that takes practice. That takes deep levels of, it takes mindfulness. You have to learn how to be aware of my body and the signals that it's giving me. You have to learn how to be aware of my breath. And what is the story my breath is telling me? My breath, is it shallow? Is it deep? You can, be, you can use awareness, which is what I'm trying to teach, <laughs> whether it's it, through psychology or through a yoga practice, I'm trying to teach awareness how to pay attention and shine a light on those aspects of self that I may not have been aware of. So in terms of holding this trauma, holding the stress, we talked about the shoulders. Are there certain parts of our bodies where we, I know it's hard to generalize, we're all unique individuals, but are there certain areas, for me specifically, I think it's my lower back. What's your take? What are the areas where we tend to hold stress? And then how, how can we help identify that? How can anyone listen and start to like tune in and, and, and really figure out those pain points, if you will? So I'll start with that. So what I invite people to do to be able to identify where they're holding stress is, again, to cultivate that inner gaze. And so you do that by asking someone to close their eyes uh, and to pay attention to their breath and to pay attention to where they may be holding stress or tension, just to pay attention to it. You don't have to do anything about it. Just notice it. And then to invite people to breathe awareness into that aspect of their body. And, and there's usually a release over time. It takes, it, it does not happen instantly, but maybe within about 20 minutes when, see, when the mind comes to stillness, the body relaxes. When the body relaxes, it releases stress. The form of the stress release might be, you might feel an involuntary jerk. You might have an unemotional, I mean, an emotional response, an unexpected emotional response. It could be laughter. It could be tears. It could be fear. It could be a flush of anger. Who, who knows what it's going to be? You just don't know. It's 2020. It's probably all the above. Yeah, it's probably all the above. <laughs> 
because we're overwhelmed. Our, <laughs> our nervous systems are overwhelmed. So, or it could be mind chatter. Your mind might get really busy. So these are all forms of stress release. The work, as far as I'm concerned, is to learn to tolerate that discomfort because it's uncomfortable to, for these things to come up. We think it isn't. We think, oh, goody, I'm going to release stress. I'm going to feel great. Well, you will after the fact. <laughs> but while it's happening, you may not. And so the work is to learn to, to tolerate the discomfort of healing. Here's a way to think about it. If you were walking down the street and you stepped on a nail and it penetrated, it went into your foot, that really hurts. It hurts a lot. And you would contract around that pain. It's normal. That's the ouch factor. You contract around it. You're not open and happy anymore. In order for the nail, for the injury to heal, you have to pull the nail out of the foot. And just the thought of that is cringeworthy because we know that's going to hurt more. And a story I like to tell is a story of a passerby walking down the street who sees a man sitting on his porch and the dog, his dog is lying next to him. The dog is whimpering. The passerby says to the man, what's wrong with your dog? Why is he whimpering? The man says, well, he's laying on a nail. <laughs> he said, laying on a nail? Why doesn't he get up? And the man says, because it hurts even more when he tries. So we tend to be, we, we don't want to get off the nail because then it hurts even more. But if we don't get off the nail, the wound festers. And this is emotional wounds I'm talking about as well. It festers and it gets worse. Or we grow numb, and, which is not a good thing either. And what we have to remember is the pain of healing is acute but it doesn't last. Hmm. The pain of staying on the nail, staying in denial about whatever it is that we don't want to face is becomes chronic and it, the pain lasts forever. It may not, you may not be aware of it. You may not be aware that you're walking around with your shoulders up around your ears and with your neck you know, in pain because of that. But, that doesn't mean it isn't there. So this is how we hold stress in our body. This is why we hold stress in our body, because we can't release contraction. The various locations, so what I do is I ask people to body map. Draw a picture of where you feel relaxed, draw a picture of where you feel stressed. But so our headaches, we hold stress in our head, we hold stress in our necks, we hold stress in our shoulders. Any, I mean, you can do any part of your body. Your back, that's a real common area, um, your gut, <clears throat> you get a stomach ache. And one of the things that we know, it's interesting that pain researchers have discovered is that emotional pain is just as painful as physical pain because emotional pain and physical pain share the same neural pathway. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It is. But when you feel heartbroken, for example, you're not making it up. It really hurts. Your chest really is hurting. <laughs> it really is. So it, it, there's so much to unpack there. And it brings up, look, we're mind, body, green. We believe it's all connected. And as we talk about the, the mind and body, a lot of people ask the question, well, does the mind wag the body or is the body wag the mind? Which leads me to body awareness 
versus cognitive awareness. And so what's the best way to describe the difference between body awareness and cognitive awareness? And for those who aren't aware of this, talk about the disassociation between the two. And what does that feel like? Okay. So I'll start by saying that just the way we think about it in terms of the binary, body awareness, mind awareness, is an aspect of disassociation. I feel like that's the world today. Everything's binary. It is. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I wanted to. I think, well, I, the, so I'm going to say this quickly and then I'll get back to the question. But I think that's the opportunity we have right now. We're being called on right now to birth a new consciousness. That's how I see it realizing that thinking in the binary is not an ideal optimal way to think. So as far as the body and the mind are concerned, in the yoga tradition, we say that there are five aspects of being. And they're, they're called, these aspects of being are called koshas, but we'll, we don't need to know that. So there's the body. We have a, a, a physical being, our physical embodiment our breath or energy body is the next one our mind and and emotions our thoughts and emotions are a, a body of awareness our wisdom body that's the part of us that is intuitive that knows beyond our thinking mind and then our spiritual body that aspect of being that is as close to the the divine as close to really experiencing your own to the universe universal consciousness is the spiritual body all right so many times they're described like russian doll dolls being one inside the other and each of these aspects of being informs the next but really the way the sages talk about it they talk about these bodies as clouds merging together so there is no separation there really is no separation we just we do that with our thinking mind and it's a cultural way of thinking it's this is not universal way of thinking we separate all of this stuff out there is no separation here there is no separation and so the work as far as I'm concerned, is to, to, to integrate all aspects of our being. Now, most of us are only aware of one or two of these aspects at a time. We're, we might be aware of our thoughts. We might be aware of our emotions. We might be aware of our f physical body. Most people are not paying much attention to their breath, although now that we are in this global pandemic, I think we're all paying mm -hmm. attention. And some of it is in kind of a neurotic way. Oh my God, do I, can I breathe? Am I breathing? But it's an important question. Am I breathing? Yeah. Oh yeah, I am. I'm breathing. Yeah. Okay. I'm good. Settling in. So what we want to do is begin to realize, wait a minute, there is no separation between my mind and my body and my emotions and my intuition, my awareness and my spiritual self, which is the part of me that wants to lead a meaningful life and find something bigger than me to attach to that. So I love everything you said. And 
but you're preaching in the choir and I, the mind and body are one. And to me, as you think about as you're dealing with trauma or anxiety or whatever it is you're trying to work on mentally, emotionally, or physically with, with a therapist, to me, it's a no brainer that tuning into the, to your body, tuning into your breath, tuning into all these things is part of the process. And again, like we don't live in that world. There are very few people like you who actually practice this way. And I'm curious, like, what do you tell fellow practitioners or just people in general who are skeptical of integrating, whether we want to call it yoga or breath work or whatever it is into, uh, someone's psychological practice? Or what do you tell those people are just like, oh, I don't know. What does that look like? What do you say to the skeptics out there? Well, first of all, as I said before, I love the choir. The choir is my favorite <laughs> group to preach to. I do. That's my preferred. I'm not trying to, I'm really not trying to convince anybody here. No, but I think we need to. But like there are people, the, no, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> sure. But there, and there are lots and lots and lots of people who don't have this, they don't have the knowledge. Maybe they don't have the information. Yeah, who want it? They there are a lot of, and these are practitioners, therapists, as well as yoga practitioners, because all yogis don't know this stuff either. And so, for those who are skeptical, I honor their skepticism. I mean, I think that unless you are doing the practice, you are probably going to be skeptical. This is, you have to, you can't just talk about this stuff. It can't be described. You practice yoga, right? Yes. You're practicing. Well, you can't describe it. I mean, you can try, but it's sort of like trying to tell somebody um, who's never tasted a mango what it tastes like. And the closest you can get to is, well, it's like a peach, but it really isn't if you've ever had a mango. It's so, it kind of, that's the closest you can get. So the closest you can get to talking about these practices, it's like talking about psychology, because there are a lot of people who are skeptical of that as well. So your descriptions are limited. Our language is limited. You have to invite people into the experience, mm. which is what I do. So I invite people into the experience. I don't try to convince you that you should see this differently because you can't. Sure. Well, I do think, I think my take is that there are a lot of people right now, maybe they're not skeptics, but they just don't, they don't have all the information. I think there are a lot of people who are, who are good people who, who want the most out of life, who want to feel better, who want to heal their trauma, who want to do this self-exploration, but don't necessarily have the tools or the resources or the access. They just don't know. They don't know. And we don't always have access to the resources yeah. of those who do know. Now, one of the things that is interesting as we're moving through this shift, this the shifts that are required because of this pandemic that we're in, I think, I'm not positive about this, but I'm thinking that people will have more access because we are, we're online now. I just participated in a conference called the Embodied Conference where there were 1,000 presenters 1,000 presenters, and I think over 700,000 participants worldwide. That's huge. That is huge. Yep. That's amazing. And so there is more 
information and there's more access to information that previously was not accessible to many people, not to everybody. Yeah. Because you have to have computers and. And then I think that the wrinkle in this, the wrinkle in 2020 is having the wherewithal and the knowledge to make sense of the very binary information (laughs) (laughs) on a lot of the topics. There's so much and it tends to be, it's very polarizing. And I think that's like the the wrinkle with there's so much information out there, but so much of it's conflicting. And it's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to believe and who to believe. Well, that's the invitation though, to do the work, to you don't have to believe. You don't have to believe. You you can know. Yeah. Well, how do I know? Do I read it in a book? You can get information in a book. But we all have this deep inner knowing that if we can tap into, we don't have to believe. Do, does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I love it. To me, that's one of the. So so I came to yoga. I almost had back surgery. 11 years ago, this is the foundation of my buddy green. I had excruciating sciatica, L4, L5, S1, two extruded discs, pressing on sciatic nerve, couldn't walk, went to a doctor. The listeners know this story, but you know, went to a doctor, said he needed back surgery, uh, nothing against surgery, but see it as last resort. So sought a second opinion. That doctor said the same thing, but he said, maybe yoga will help. So I started practicing a little light yoga, very light, five to 10 minutes. And long story short, completely healed, never got surgery. And it was an eye-opening experience for me. And to me, one of the beauties of yoga, one, I came in like healing physically, but of course, in the process, there were very emotionally and, and spiritually, it was a, a lot going on, a lot going on with me. However, I will say like what, where you're going, I think is so important. What, what I love about the practice of yoga is you start to get in touch with that inner light, that knowing, whatever you want to call it, you become more in tune you make better decisions. Like I, w- I would sometimes joke, like you don't go to a yoga class and go, all right, we're going to McDonald's after. You just don't make that. It's the greatest gateway drug mm-hmm. to whatever you're looking for, in my opinion, because you start to tap into that knowing, that inner GPS, if you will. Mm-hmm. And not to mention there's the, the benefits of healing trauma and all letting go of tension, all these things. It's just, it's an amazing practice. It is an amazing practice. It, it, yeah. And so, so for me, we talked about, I, you know, I had my, my couple go to poses for healing my lower back. I, I'm curious in terms of managing stress, releasing trauma, are there specific, do you have a, a go-to? I know everyone's different, but like some go-tos for people who just, who want to experiment with tapping into managing stress and releasing that emotion? Well, first I would suggest that you not, I think it's important for us to approach any, any yoga practice. And it's, again, it's hard for me to separate practicing yoga on the mat and what you're doing in your life. Cause I think that what you're doing off the mat is more important, but hundred percent, hundred percent. It's all connect. It's all one. You can't just practice yoga on the mat. It's a way of living. Yeah. 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 Called taking yoga off your mat. Yes. And what I'll answer the question in a minute. And what I did was I would sit in these yoga classes that I was taking, and I had some fabulous teachers once I started doing taking studio yoga classes, and I would listen to the language that they were using. And people, we, we all tend to speak in jargon, like psychologists have their own language that we speak, and yogis do too, and it's like, what? 
what are they talking about that? So I would sit and listen and say, okay, how does this apply? How does this apply? What does that really mean? And figure out ways to apply what I'm learning while I'm on this mat outside of the yoga studio so I can live my life differently. So on the yoga mat, I learned, I, I think it was in 2011, I, decided, I took a yoga teacher training, which is where I was introduced to restorative yoga. Restorative yoga is a supported yoga. We use all kinds of props, bolsters, blankets, blocks, you name it, to hold the body in postures in a comfortable position so that you can hold the postures for extended periods of time in a relaxed position. It's practiced in stillness. It's practiced in silence. It needs to be warm and the room should probably be dark. All right, so why? Because what we're doing is we're stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system, that part of our nervous system that calms us. We live in a culture that's on overdrive most of the time. On top of that, you got your own stresses and traumas that you're dealing with, which means that your fight flight, your sympathetic nervous system is turned on. We have to balance that by bringing the parasympathetic nervous system, the, the part of us that calms online so that the two are in balance. When that happens, we are balanced. We're balanced and we can move back and forth between both systems as needed. All right. So I'm practicing this restorative yoga, which is being practiced in stillness. And I'm feeling like I want to jump out of my skin because <laughs> I'm not used to being still. Because I always had a very active, I still do, I have a very active yoga practice. Not as much anymore because, as it turns out, <laughs> BKA, as Ang Iyengar was right, when you get older, you, you just can't do all that stuff anymore. So there's a lot I can't do anymore. But Spoken I, from the guy who was like doing back bends in his it, 90s. It, yeah. But yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> so, so I remember at one point being in a posture and the, uh, teacher, the woman who was teaching us uh, how to teach this stuff came over and just put her hands on me and said, stop it. Because I was fidgeting. She just stop it. So what I realized about restorative yoga that I love is that it really does bring you into yourself because you're being still. You don't have to think about the movements that you're making. You're holding these postures for an extended period of time, which gives you an opportunity to really observe yourself from the inside out. This is my work, so I'm loving this. And I'm noticing how challenging this is because it's hard for me. And I'm thinking, wow, I know that this is good for me, but it's really hard to do. It's a very advanced practice. Unlike all of the, the very extremely challenging physical practices that are hard, they're really hard to do. This one is really tough, but it helped me realize we, this is what we need. We need a way in. We need a way to discover that, oh, I do have an inner life. Oh, I am not just a victim of what's going on around me. There's stuff going on inside of me 
that I need to become acquainted with. Because I can do something about that. It teaches you what relaxation feels like. When you're on high alert most of the time, you don't know. You don't even, if you've ever had a massage and you're enjoying the massage, it feels really good, and all of a sudden you think you're relaxed, and then all of a sudden something releases, and you realize, oh, I didn't know I wasn't relaxed. So it gives you those awarenesses. It teaches you about things about yourself, the way your body works, the way your breath works, the way your mind works, that you didn't know before, and nobody has to tell you about it because it's your experience. So that's why, so, so when I'm feeling, when COVID started, and because I'm in California, we got the news before everybody on the East Coast got it. I mean, we were sort of flipped out in February, really, because things were shutting down here then. And I went to my restorative practice. I knew, I thought, you know what? More than ever now, I need to... I, want, I, I need to remain as calm as possible. And if you start trying to do these practices when you're in the middle of stress and trauma, it's really hard. It's, it's like trying to teach a drowning man to swim. I mean, it's, it's just not the optimal time to do it. You want to integrate these practices into your daily life. If you don't practice yoga, you can lay down on your back, put something comfortable under your knees, a blanket roll or a pillow or something, close your eyes and begin to take some deep breaths and just begin to notice the calmness that you start to feel. You may not feel that right away. You may feel antsy at first and you really don't wanna be doing this and I wanna jump out of my skin. And that's not the time to stop. Well, that's what people say. Well, I don't like to meditate because it makes me nervous. I don't like to be still because it makes me nervous. No. What you're discovering is how nervous you are, how jittery you are. And if you can sit with it long enough, five minutes, if five minutes is all you can tolerate, that's fine. And then you extend the time. If you can sit in stillness long enough, you will begin to increase your tolerance for stillness until you can reach a point of coming into deep relaxation. So, so that was way around. No, I love what you said, and it begs the question, how many of us really do experience that relaxation on a daily basis? How many of us really do have emotional balance? Like I'm of the mind, I believe that most people don't. We don't even know it. So my question to you is, how do we know if we're if we have that? I'm curious. Do you think do you agree that most people are walking around and don't even know that how out of whack we are? And and what does that look like? How do we know that we have that balance, if you will? So I don't know that. Mo I mean, maybe most people are. I I'm hanging around with people who have more awareness than that. And there are a lot of us are unaware. We have not cultivated that part of our being that can be aware. Your mind does not is not what makes you aware. By the way, your thinking mind is not your the part of you that is aware. There is another part of us, and this is hard to this is hard to grasp. 
again, you, I think you have to have the experience. There is a part of us that notices. Right now, for example, I notice that I'm talking to you. I notice that, um, that I'm thinking right now. I'm trying to think, you find words right now. That's not the same as thinking about stuff. The noticing part is not the thinker. So when we sort of begin to, to grasp that, wait a minute, there's another part of me here. There's a part of me that notices things and you decide to cultivate a relationship with that part of yourself. That's when you come into these deeper awarenesses of the fact that there is more to me than my thoughts. I have thoughts, but I'm not my thoughts. I have emotions, but I'm not my emotions. I have a body, but I'm not my body. Well, who am I? What if it turns out that I'm this part that notices things? What if it turns out that I am consciousness itself? Now, these are difficult to grasp. No, you sound, you sound like Sharon Salzberg right now. Ah, okay. <laughs> Very Sharon Salzberg, who we've had on the, on the podcast. Yeah, all right. So it's just beginning to realize. I mean, some people on their own come to these awarenesses. And some of us need a little bit more prompting from external events. But for example, one of the val to the extent that to the extent that this very stressful time we're in has meaning. We'll put it. We'll call it meaning. I sure hope so. Well, I, <laughs> well, we. I think we create the meaning. What I mean, so so you begin to ask yourself, what, yeah, what, what is this? What's really going on here? How can I make how can I make meaning out of this? Now, now we're in our spiritual realm. We are meaning making beings. We are meaning making beings. We have, we are, consciousness itself. Really, what is consciousness? I can't explain it. I don't know. I just know it. I just know it is, you know, and we are it. We are in it. We are in, you know, a lot of times this is a, a little aside, but I think a lot of times we when we think of consciousness, we think, well, consciousness is in me. Mm -mm. We are in consciousness. And I think now is the time for us to ask ourselves, what is the consciousness I'm in? And is it the consciousness I want to occupy? I love that. So when you mentioned meaning, for me, when I think of meaning, I think in order to find that meaning, I, what, what do I think helps? I think experience, wisdom, perspective, and go back to, we started off talking about this is 2020. You experienced 1968 firsthand. I did not. I was born in 74. I missed that. So I, I'm curious, as we as we look to make change, as we we look to find meaning, as we we look to I'm like there, there's a lot to look to right now, and I'm curious in terms of the, the race based stress and collective trauma that so many are experiencing right now. I'm curious, in your opinion, does that get compounded over time? And then my part two is how do we heal? How, where do we go? from here there's obviously there's a lot of anger and a lot of people and rightfully so but you can't run on anger 
forever. Yeah, and, yeah. and healing needs to be part of the process. So it's a two-part question. Let's talk about you know, does this get compounded over time? And then where do we go from here? How do we begin to build that consciousness, if you will, to borrow your words, and collectively heal? It's a big question. It's a big it's a question. question. It's a very big question. Everyone understands that. It's, very big it's a, question. All right. It's a very big question. So I will try to break it down into bite-sized pieces. I think recognizing, that unfortunately, it has taken some very dramatic, very violent events that we have seen that are bringing awareness to this global awakening to the pandemic of racial violence and racial injustice. It's always been there. This is not new. But there appears to be an awakening to the fact that, oh, this is real. This is happening. I cannot deny what I'm seeing. Well, some people can, but you know what I mean. Here it is. Okay, now what do I do with that? Awareness, that's an awareness. What do I do with that awareness? That each of us has to ask ourselves that. So what's the so, what do I do with that? Not what do I do about it? It's not that. What do I make of it? What do I make of it? How does it impact me? How do I contribute to that? How do I insulate myself from that? I mean, these are really important questions for all of us to begin to ask right now. And what do I want to see differently? What do I want to see? What world do I envision? Can I envision a world that supports a brighter future for all of us? How have I been impacted by my own, my own racial identity? What is my own racial identity? See, a lot of times we think that race is people of color, black folks and other people, but we don't, but that white people are not included in that, but it's not true. So what is my racial identity? What is my ethnic identity? I think these are, what is, and maybe the answer is, I don't know, I never thought about it. I have no idea. So then the, so then I really am leading you on the path of, re, of recovery or healing, which is, well, if I don't know, how do I go deeper into this inquiry? How do I go deeper instead of just letting it be, well, I don't know, and I don't care, and it doesn't affect me. And I mean, that's one way of managing this. But I don't think that's the wise way. <laughs> I think a wiser way, if one is interested in growth, is to get curious about all of this to get really curious about all of this. So one of the one of the things that I say, I think this sort of gives an answer to the the big question, which is every single human being wants to love and be loved. We all want that. We want to love and be loved. When that need is frustrated, we might find ourselves in fear, afraid. If we remain stuck in fear is the withholding of love from ourselves or other people. That's what fear is. If we remain stuck in fear, 
we might find ourselves really angry. This is like if we don't pull the nail out. <laughs> so now yeah, I'm angry. Yeah. It, it, it's a great metaphor. It really is. If yeah. I pull the nail out of my anger and, I'm, and I just lay on the nail of anger, the next thing I know, I might go into hatred. Once I'm in on the nail of hatred, the next step is delusion. I become delusional. And once you become delu once you lose touch with reality, with the reality of yourself, that what I really need and want is love. And oh yeah, so that's what everybody else wants. Now I'm in hatred and I start acting out of my hatred. I'm in delusion. It's a long way back to what I really need and want is love. But so when you notice that you're feeling hatred, for example, and it gets your attention, you might want to ask yourself, well, what do, what do I hate? Get an answer. Well, what am I angry about? You get an answer. Not right away. This takes a while. <laughs> well, what am I afraid of? You might get an answer. And ideally, you get back to the real need, which is, I just want to love and be loved. That's, that's all I want. When we can remain in touch with that deep need within ourselves, that's where the healing is. It's really, it's not even, I'm, I'm trying to get away from the use of medical language to describe all of this stuff. So remembering who I am at my core. That's what our yoga teaches us, how to remember, reconnect with who? Self. And when I can remember who I am, I can connect with you from that place. And even if you have forgotten who you are, if I can remain steady in knowing who I am, that, that I, I, I am love, if I can remember that, <laughs> it's not always easy, then it can help your transformation as well. How? Because in relationship to me, you have felt something that you may have forgotten. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I do. It's all very subtle. And it's easy. It is not an easy path, but it is a sure path. It's not a comfortable path. And, I, and so for me, the yoga practices, the way, again, I teach them and the way I value them, the yoga teaches us to know the difference between discomfort and pain. We're not, tr we're not trying to create pain. And gives us the capability to expand our tolerance for discomfort as I'm going through a process of remembering who I really am. Be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Wow, it's so hard. It is hard. It's very hard, but we'll it's part of the. Yeah, you need, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't run away. Put it, don't run away from it. Because at the bottom is we learn that our shadow is the worst part of us. I don't teach it that way. I think the part the parts of us that we don't know are frequently our best parts. And that we may have to get through 
a whole bunch of worst parts to get to that. But at the bottom of all of, at the bottom, we, we, we get to the best of who we are. If we're willing to, it's the hero's journey. Sure. You're going to meet a whole lot of demons along the way. And it can be very scary. And what I say to people is, we got to do it scared. But you don't have to do it alone. I love it. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Gail Parker, thank you so much. If you ever run for office, you have our vote. Don't worry, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a wise, a wise choice. But th thank, you, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gail. Thank you.